Ay, Nicaragua, Nicaraguita, la flor más linda de mi querer, abonada con la bendita Nicaragüita, sangre de Diriangen. Ay, Nicaragua, son más dosita que la mielita de Tamagas, pero ahora que ya sos libre Nicaragüita, yo te quiero mucho más. Pero ahora que ya sos libre, Nicaragüita, yo te quiero mucho más. Ay, Nicaragua, Nicaragüita, la flor más linda de mi querer, abonada con la bendita Nicaragüita. Sangre de Diriangen, ay Nicaragua, sos más dosita que la mielita de Tamagas, pero ahora que ya sos libre, Nicaragüita, yo te quiero mucho más, pero ahora que ya sos libre, Nicaragüita. Yo te quiero mucho más. Welcome to the Counter Vortex with me, Bill Weinberg. Uh, opening up with my own rendition of Nicaragua, Nicaraguita, by the great Nicaraguan singer and songwriter, Carlos Mejia Godoy. Carlos, I hope you're okay with me doing a little rendition of your song, uh, which is really kind of a second national anthem of Nicaragua, the national anthem of revolutionary Nicaragua after the U.S.-backed dictatorship of Anastasio Somoza was overthrown in the Sandinista Revolution of 1979, opening up a, um, uh, an extremely hopeful, optimistic, energized period in Nicaragua's history, which really was an inspiration to the entire world in those years. Uh, it seems like hardly anybody remembers this today, but I've been having a, um, a certain sense of deja vu over the past couple of weeks with all of these names from uh, the drama which played out over Nicaragua in the 1980s when I was a young man in my 20s, uh, suddenly re-emerging into the news. Starting with the president, Daniel Ortega, who was the president of Nicaragua back then in the 1980s and is the president of Nicaragua today and has been faced with a... Um, an extremely militant protest movement uh, now demanding his ouster. Number one. Uh, number two, Oliver North, who back in the 1980s was the Reagan administration's point man for the destabilization of the Nicaraguan revolution and the illegal Contra war, which was being waged against Nicaragua in those years. 
suddenly has been uh, is is back in the news again as uh, the newly appointed president of the National Rifle Association. And then uh, finally, um, compared to those other two, somewhat of a lesser known figure, but just a couple of days ago, Posada Carriles died, who was, um, and the, you know, there were a couple of um, obituaries which made note of his death in the, in the media. And uh, he, not to mince words here, he was a U.S. harbored terrorist who disgracefully died a free man protected by the United States from extradition to face justice for his crimes. And he was also a, um, a very key figure in, even though he was a, um, a Cuban uh, uh, anti-Castro militant, as they say, uh, he was, um, of course, when the revolutionary contagion spread from Cuba to Nicaragua in the right-wing view um, in the 1980s, he became a, a very key figure in uh, the, the whole um, destabilization campaign, which was led by, uh, by, by Oliver North and the Reagan administration. So um, I'll, have, uh, I'll have more to say about, about these three figures. Let me uh, do a little overview as people may recall, again, 1979, in July of 1979, finally, the Nicaraguan Revolution triumphed. And the U.S.-backed dictator Anastasio Somoza and his brutal National Guard were forced to flee into exile in Miami. And contrary to what happened in Cuba in 1959, where the henchmen of the old regime were put up against a wall and shot, in Nicaragua, they made a, a real show, a real um, uh, visible commitment to human rights. And they specifically said, no, we're not going to do it that way. Even though they were allied with Cuba and obviously taking you know, inspiration from the Cuban Revolution, they quite specifically said, no, we're not going to do it that way. And they, in fact, abolished the death penalty in Nicaragua. Upon, um, upon the victory of the revolution in 1979. And the regime, which had widespread support from the peasantry, from the campesinos of Nicaragua, began redistributing the land through an agrarian reform program, redistributing the land to the campesinos, land to the tiller, land to those who work it, and um, uh, you know, literacy campaigns, and a real spirit of um, you know, very, very idealistic revolutionary change sweeping the country. And immediately in response to this, okay, the, all those um, National Guards men from the old regime who had committed terrible human rights abuses, um, instead of um, being shot, they were allowed to flee, went to, went, to, went to Miami, their leaders went to Miami, and they were organized into a counter-revolutionary guerrilla army by the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency. The, uh, and they became known as the Contras, for Contrarevolucionarios, counter-revolutionaries, um, who with uh, you know, aid from the newly elected Reagan administration began uh, infiltrating into Nicaragua from their training camps across the border in Honduras and um, carrying out attacks. And the Contras were terrorists by any single standard definition of the word. They were terrorists. They were attacking civilian infrastructure including 
the farms. They were attacking agriculture and health clinics and so on. The Revolutionary Army of the Sandinista regime was brought in to harvest the coffee because the, the coffee plantations were being attacked by, the, um, by, by, by these U.S.-backed terrorists, <coughs> CIA-backed terrorists. Eventually, Nicaragua went to the world court. And in 1986, they got a favorable ruling from the world court at The Hague over U.S. backing of the, uh, of the Contra guerrillas and also uh, U.S. mining of, um, of Nicaragua's harbors. And basically, the Reagan administration said to the world court, drop dead. We're going to completely, openly defy you and continue to uh, back the Contras. But there was a period after, um, back in 1983, Congress cut off aid to the Contras because of all of the uh, news accounts of the terrible human rights abuses they were committing. And that is when uh, Oliver North enters the picture. He was a, um, a point man on the, uh, of the National Security Council. He was an agent of the National Security Council who was um, given the responsibility for continuing aid to the Contras in defiance of Congress and doing it through entirely through uh, covert and illegal means. And most notoriously, this included um, organizing the illegal arms sales to Iran, supposedly the enemy of the United States at that time, and using the... um, using the profits from these illegal arms sales to Iran to fund the to illegally fund the Nicaraguan rebels, to illegally fund the Contra rebels, and also um, essentially integrating the uh, Contra um, rearmament supply operation into the cocaine trade and essentially playing ball with the, uh, with the Medellin cartel in Colombia. And uh, very often it was, it was literally the same planes as was all later documented through um, both through congressional testimony and later by the uh, the research of um, uh, journalist Gary Webb for the San Jose Mercury News, um, sometimes the same planes which were involved in uh, you know ferrying guns down to the Contras training camps in Honduras were also used in ferrying cocaine north to uh, north to Miami, and this was uh, the work of uh, of Oliver North and his crew, which um, was in the most Orwellian irony imaginable. They called this covert operation Project Democracy, quote, unquote. And as a part of this, um, Oliver North went out and began recruiting a private network of spies to oversee this whole operation. And um, all essentially... Um, he uh, grafted on to his own covert operation, literally run out of the basement of the White House. He was given an office in the basement of the White House to run this covert operation. And he essentially took a, um, a, a network of right-wing Cuban terrorists and sort of, you know, grafted it onto his operation. And um, Luis Posada Carriles was the um, sort of the granddaddy and the most revered figure in this in this network. Another key figure in the network was Felix Rodriguez, uh, who um, was a longtime U.S. agent who had been active in the uh, Bay of Pigs invasion and uh, then was actually among the team that hunted down and killed Che Guevara 
in Bolivia in 1967 and allegedly uh, was involved in uh, in torturing Che Guevara to death. Um, and he was um, he was assigned uh, the task of um, coordinating the Contra resupply flights out of Ilopango Air Base in um, in El Salvador in those years. And he actually bragged that he would time the Contra resupply flights with the wristwatch that he had taken off of Che Guevara's dead body in Bolivia in 1967. So um, a real rogues gallery. I should um, make clear, by the way, that um, Posada Carriles, who was the, the granddaddy, so to speak, of this whole um, right-wing Cuban terrorist network, which was grafted onto Oliver North's Contra resupply operation, uh, was living happily and openly in Miami at this time, despite the fact that he was wanted by the governments both of Cuba and Venezuela, uh, wanted by the government of Cuba for carrying out um, a string of hotel bombings in Havana, and wanted by the government of Venezuela for um, masterminding the 1976 bombing of a Cuban civilian airliner in Venezuelan territory in which 73 people were killed. So an accused terrorist by any definition, who was at this time living openly in the Miami area and involved in um, uh, this Orwellianly named Project Democracy, this illegal resupply network for uh, the the, the Nicaraguan right-wing terrorists. Now, later on, he um, did have some tussles with the immigration authorities uh, in recent years, over the course of the past um, oh, five, five or ten years. But, um, and he was, I believe, briefly detained by the immigration authorities. But um, it didn't stick, and he died a free man, disgracefully. And uh, back in, I believe it was 2016, he was actually given a medal by the Cuban History Academy at Miami-Dade College treated as a, you know, as a pillar of the community when, you know, he was essentially a, um, a mass murdering terrorist, at least an accused, because he was never tried, an accused mass murdering terrorist who was being sheltered by the United States government. Eventually, again, disgracefully, Congress did restore aid to the, um, uh, to the Contras, in 1985, the scandal broke, and it was um, revealed, all these shenanigans. Initially, the, um, the arms sales to Iran and the kickbacks to the Contras were, um, were revealed. And then later on in the, um, in the congressional hearings, even though um, it was, you know, poo-pooed by the media, first, you know, hushed up by the media and then sort of poo-pooed by the media, uh, nonetheless, it was it was revealed in the congressional hearings that the Contra resupply operation was uh, was doubling as a, a cocaine smuggling operation. And in fact, um, several figures who were involved in this, including uh, Joe Fernandez, the CIA station chief in Costa Rica at that time, were actually you know barred from Costa Rican territory by an act of Costa Rica's National Assembly. And I believe it was 1987 because they were found by an investigation of the Costa Rican government to have been, uh, you know, conducting a um, a cocaine smuggling ring out of Costa Rican territory. Uh, And this is Costa Rica, mind you, which was, you know, an ally of the United States. This was not, you know, some, uh, 
some, you know, left-wing extremist regime. This was Costa Rica, a country within the U.S. orbit, so to speak. And there were two um, contra fronts at this point. One was being um, organized out of um, Honduras and was making raids um, into, coast, in, into, the, um, into the north of Nicaragua. And then eventually a second front opened um, out of Costa Rica that was making raids across the San Juan River into, into southern Nicaragua. By the late, um, and in addition to all of this, you know, uh, there were also the U.S. sanctions against Nicaragua. And Nicaragua, having been throughout the long, long years of the hereditary Somoza dictatorship, you know, it was um, a father-son regime like the Devaliers in, uh, in Haiti. Um, <clears throat> during the long years of the Somoza dynasty, uh, Nicaragua had been thoroughly within the U.S. orbit. So it was massively dependent on the United States for its economic sustenance, both in terms of aid and most significantly as a as a market for its exports, which at that time were um, mostly bananas and coffee and beef to a certain extent. So um, once the sanctions were hit in, uh, Nicaragua's economy just went into a it went into a tailspin. So by the late 1980s, the uh, the shine was starting to wear off of the Nicaraguan Revolution. And uh, it has to be said that, uh, you know, the Sandinistas made some made some errors in this period, which cost them a lot of popular support. Uh, And one of them most um, obviously and uh, most early on in the revolution was uh, their dealings with the Mosquito indigenous people on the extremely remote um, and isolated Caribbean coast of Nicaragua, which was, you know, cut off by by jungle and, you know, where there weren't any paved roads from the rest of the country. And the uh, the Sandinistas kind of just went in there and started imposing their order without really consulting with the local communities and um, uh, engaged in some, you know, uh, forced relocations of communities away from the border zone with Honduras to prevent them, uh, you know, from having contact with the Contras. And this, of course, only completely backfired and actually resulted in the uh, Mosquitos actually forming their own insurgency and taking up arms against the Sandinista government. And it has to be said that while the the Contras started out really as a mercenary army of the CIA, which was headed by by, uh, former National Guard figures from the old regime, from the Somoza dictatorship, at a certain point... Even among the, uh, you know, the campesinos in central Nicaragua who had started out as the real support base of the Sandinistas, the Contras began to gain some support amongst them because, you know, through, I mean, paternalism and corruption and so on, uh, you know, the Sandinista government was beginning by the... um, by the late 1980s to, uh, you know, to erode their own base of support. So finally came the, uh, so finally came the uh, elections of 1990 when the Sandinistas were voted out of power. The first elections after they took power had been in 1984 and the right-wing opposition boycotted. So it was an easy victory for them. And also that was at the, uh, when they were still very, very popular, and they probably would have won anyway, which is why the right-wing opposition boycotted. But um, in uh, the 1990 elections, the right-wing opposition did not boycott. They participated. And uh, essentially, I mean, the Nicaraguan populace voted with a metaphorical gun to their head. I mean, I am not dismissing the fact that the Sandinistas 
eroded their own support base through paternalism and corruption. But uh, I think that the greater factor was that um, the Nicaraguans understood that if they didn't um, if they didn't vote out the Sandinistas, the sanctions were going to continue and the war was going to continue probably. Although by that point, the war was winding down because of the um, Esquipulas peace process, which had been um, spearheaded by Oscar Arias, the Nobel Peace Prize winning president of Costa Rica, who, um, to his great credit, um, sort of uh, seized the initiative <laughs> from Washington and from the Reagan administration and actually got the, um, the leaders of uh, Central America to sit down at the peace, at the, at the peace table and to negotiate um, an end to the, um, uh, to the unrest and the insurgencies in Nicaragua as well as in, uh, as in Guatemala and, uh, and El Salvador in those years. So the war was already starting to wind down by 1990, but um, it was still a factor, and certainly the U.S. sanctions were going to continue. So the Sandinistas were voted out. And um, right-wing parties were in power for a generation after that, and a lot of the gains of the Sandinista revolution were reversed until the elections of 2006 when Daniel Ortega actually regained power. Now, a critical point needs to be make here, made here that when, um, when Ortega had been the president of Nicaragua back in the 1980s, it was kind of a nominal post. Really, the country was being run in sort of a democratic centralist manner by a directorate, by the, uh, the Sandinista directorate, of, and, uh, which was a, um, a body of um, the top comandantes, of which Ortega was but one. And really the decisions were, were, were made in common by this directorate, and Ortega was really, while serving as president, he was really just its public face. So it was a somewhat um, more democratic system, even just in terms of the, the party structure back in the 1980s than it was when he took power the second time in 2006. By this time, the Sandinistas, after having been out of power for a, um, a generation, the party had become splintered and um, the main branch, which kept the name FSLN, Sandinista National Liberation Front, uh, really sort of devolved into a personality cult around Ortega. And it was no longer like it was back in the 1980s when he was just the front man for a, for a directorate and uh, which ruled in democratic centralist manner. But um, he was uh, pretty much the caudillo, so to speak. He was, the, he was the strong man and began to act more and more like a, um, a caudillo as you know, now the you know, almost 10 years that he's been in power wore on. And uh, he made some really, really bad moves. One was actually passing a, an extremely draconian anti-abortion law in a um, blatant play for support, both from uh, you know, right-wing evangelical Protestant converts, as well as from the most reactionary sectors of the Catholic Church in Nicaragua. Um, and the, also very significantly started... Um, wheeling and dealing with um, the Chinese to build a massive canal through Nicaragua, an interoceanic canal to rival or replace the 
Panama Canal. And while the Panama Canal, um, you know, had been built by um, by the United States government, although it's no longer controlled by the United States government, uh, you know, this was going to be built by the rival, one of the rival superpowers, you know, the up and coming rival superpower, China. Uh, but um, in terms of its um, social and ecological impacts, just as horrific, it would have um, uh, involved, uh, you know, the clearing and flooding of massive areas of tropical rainforest and agricultural land and would have meant the forcible relocation of thousands of campesinos. So obviously this was extremely unpopular. I'm saying would have because um, the project has not been moving ahead as fast as um, as Ortega had hoped, even though all the paperwork is in place and um, and the, uh, the the Hong Kong firm, which was contracted to build it, is really ready to begin. They really haven't uh, made much progress on it. Uh, due in part, I would like to think to popular protest. Uh, there's been uh, you know big campesino mobilizations against the canal project, um, and the the leaders of these mobilizations have been met with some repression. And, uh, you know, some of uh, some of them have been imprisoned and so on. And um, Amnesty International has actually assailed the canal plan as um, placing business before the future of the country and its people um, in a uh, report just last year uh, protesting the uh, repression against um, opponents of the canal plan. And then finally, uh, you know, this all came to a uh, all came to a head. Uh, just in uh, in recent weeks with Ortega's planned um, reform of the Social Security system in Nicaragua, which uh, essentially would have, uh, you know, imposed greater austerity on workers and was met with a, um, a tremendous protest mobilization and now actually uh, demanding his ouster and accusing him of establishing a new dictatorship. And there was, uh, you know, a real... Uh, violence and repression. At least 40 people were killed in the violence. And, you know, it has to be said that Nicaragua was coming under um, pressure from the International Monetary Fund to uh, put in place a reform of the uh, Social Security system. But basically, um, uh, well, there's some contestation. I mean, Ortega's supporters are claiming that the plan which he put in place was actually less draconian than that demanded by the IMF. But still, draconian enough to set off these protests. So now even um, Ernesto Cardenal, the um, revered Nicaraguan poet and priest who um, had been the minister of culture um, under the, uh, the first Sandinista government, the, revol- the truly revolutionary Sandinista government back in, the, back in the 1980s, even he is now calling for, um, for Ortega's ouster. So just as um, Daniel Ortega resurfaced back into the news over these massive protests in Nicaragua, um, lo and behold, so does Oliver North, who becomes uh, president of the National Rifle Association. And the National Rifle Association is, uh, they've always been, you know, a completely reactionary organization, but becoming more and more so all the time. And now I would say that they're really, you know, a part of, of what can only be called the radical right in this country. And uh, one of the, uh, you know, more um, ironic uh, bits of extremist rhetoric, which have been brandished by North since he became the president of the organization, is, um, you know, baiting the, or the anti-gun activists as terrorists, quote, un 
quote, I mean, again, this is just a sense, you know, the Orwellian meter absolutely off the charts. I mean, here is the guy who back in the 1980s was, um, you know, selling arms to the, uh, you know, terrorist sponsoring regime of Iran and using the kickbacks to fund right wing terrorists in Nicaragua. Uh, accusing nonviolent activists of being terrorists. I mean, it just absolutely amazes me that anybody could possibly fall for this. And there's one particularly, um, you know, sinister irony here, which is, you know, the, um, the National Rifle Association base has been, you know, for years they have been bandying around this um, conspiracy theory that um, the government is getting ready to um, to take away the guns of folks in the White Heartland, basically, um, and as a prelude to you know rounding up the populace in um, concentration camps, which will be run by the Federal Emergency Management Agency, so-called FEMA camps, uh, you know, rounding up anybody who would resist the. Um, the uh, the gun seizure was was going to be interned in in FEMA camps. This has been a uh, ever since the militia movement of the of the 1990s, the uh, sort of the milieu that uh, t- turned into the incubator for um, Timothy McVeigh and the uh, terrorist attack on the on the Oklahoma City Federal Building back in I believe it was 1995. Um, this has been in that whole milieu. This has been a um, uh, a sort of you know popular folklore or urban legend or what have you this whole theory about the about the FEMA camps and where does this actually originate well um what i'm about to tell you may strike you as improbable or may strike you as you know i'm engaging in conspiracy theory myself except that i am not this actually this is a fact which came out in congressional testimony okay this is not just some scuttlebutt I picked up from some paranoid conspiracy theory website. This came out in congressional testimony during the Contragate hearings in 1986 that um, in addition to Oliver North being uh, appointed by uh, the National Security Council, by the Reagan National Security Council to um, continue to supply arms to the Nicaraguan Contras in defiance of Congress. He was also charged with organizing a plan to suspend the United States Constitution and institute martial law in the event that the U.S. actually invaded Nicaragua and that this was going to, on one hand, set off massive anti-war protests within the United States and, on the other hand, result in a massive flood of Central American refugees across the, um, the southern frontier of the United States. So, and a part of this plan for suspending the U.S. Constitution and instituting martial law uh, in, in which the Federal Emergency Management Agency would take over most functions of government now that, you know, Congress had been suspended, a part of this plan called for um, massive interceptions of Central American refugees and placing them in military detainment camps.
there was actually a readiness exercise dubbed Rex 84 Alpha, which was carried out by FEMA in 1984, where, you know, they did maneuvers out in the desert in Arizona and New Mexico and somewhat and pretended to, you know, round up imaginary Central American refugees. And they actually, in this plan, they actually designated several military bases around the country which would be used to, um, to detain the intercepted refugees. One of them, by the way, was Camp Chrome in Florida, which actually had been used to thusly detain um, intercepted Haitian boat people, so-called, in, uh, who uh, you know, were fleeing the, uh, fleeing the Duvalier dictatorship in the early 1980s. And, and that was a Justice Department program, which, by the way, was headed up by the then number two man in the Justice Department, Rudolph Giuliani, another name which continues to be in the news, much to our chagrin. So um, a final detail of Oliver North's martial law plan was um, that he was going to actually deputize right-wing militias and paramilitary groups, mostly in the Western states, um, actually have them deputized by FEMA to, uh, you know, back up the National Guard and the military in intercepting Central American refugees. So all of what I just told you is fact. These plans existed. Their existence was revealed in congressional testimony after you know, during the Contragate hearings in uh, 1986. All of that is fact. Now I'm going to enter into the realm of conjecture just a little bit, but I don't think that it really requires much conjecture to um, surmise what happened in the following years, which is that some of the, uh, the people from those paramilitary groups, which um, Oliver North, you know, the right-wing paramilitary groups, which had been um, uh, schmoozing with Oliver North about their eventual deputization as a part of this uh, refugee interception plan and martial law plan, um, some of the figures from those paramilitary groups went on to found the militia movement in um, in the United States after President Clinton was elected and, you know, sent off, uh, you know, this whole wave of paranoia about, you know, gun confiscations and the militia movement took off and this whole sort of conspiracy theory uh, milieu across, you know, white rural America uh, just sort of proliferated, uh, again, eventually resulting in the uh, the Oklahoma City terrorist attack. Um, and some of those same, I believe that there was probably a continuity between those paramilitary groups which had been designated by Oliver North back in the 1980s and those which went on to found the militia movement in the 1990s. So probably there were leaders of the militia movement who were aware of the, um, the FEMA camp plan um, that um, Oliver North had actually spearheaded because they had been in on it. That's where they got the idea for, uh, you know, this this conspiracy. But they, uh, you know, completely sort of flipped it on its head. And rather than, uh, you know, right wing militias being a part of the plan to institute martial law and the victims being, uh, you know, the the intended targets of the roundup being Central American refugees and anti-war protest. Instead, they totally flipped it on their head and they made it seem like, uh, you know, the... um, uh, white rural militia types were actually going to be targeted by 
FEMA to be, you know, rounded up in um, rounded up in detainment camps. So, um, again, pretty extreme irony to, uh, you know, the fact that, you know, Oliver North is now the head of the organization. Which has been uh, peddling these conspiracy theories or certainly the organization, which is, you know, a part of the same cultural milieu, if you will, which has been peddling these conspiracy theories about FEMA just sends the irony meter right off the um, right off the charts. I'm going to make one more final observation before I sign off here, which also sort of sets the irony meter off the charts, which is that the uh, the NRA is now under investigation by the FBI for possibly serving as a conduit of Russian money into the Trump campaign. And uh, there have been some big donations to the NRA uh, in recent years by Russian figures, including one oligarch, a banker, a Russian banker by the name of Alexander Torshin, who apparently with very close ties to Vladimir Putin, who um, made a... uh, a big donation to the NRA, which the FBI is now looking into to see whether any of that money was funneled to the Trump campaign. And uh, turning our attention once again to Nicaragua under Daniel Ortega, just as he um, is sort of schmoozing up to, uh, cozying up to China as, you know, sort of a, um, an imperial counterbalance to the U.S., um, he's been doing the same thing with Russia. And uh, for the first time, a Russian president visited Nicaragua a couple of years ago. I believe it was 2016. Vladimir Putin actually visited Nicaragua and um, met with Ortega to uh, discuss possible military coordination at the same time that uh, Russia is, you know, massively expanding its military footprint, even in the Caribbean. Um, so, you know, this was the same kind of talk that we heard from the Reagan administration back when the Sandinistas were in power back in 1985. And of course, back then it wasn't Russia, it was the Soviet Union. And in fact, Brezhnev never did visit Nicaragua. <laughs> And, uh, you know, while uh, the Soviet Union via Cuba was supplying arms to Nicaragua to defend itself in the event of a U.S. revolution, uh, you know, at that time, the uh, the Russians really did not have very much of a military footprint in the Caribbean region. And that kind of talk really was red baiting. Uh, Today, however, Russia is no longer red. Okay. The Soviet Union is history. And Vladimir Putin, even if he brandishes a certain amount of socialistic and left-wing rhetoric and, you know, anti-U.S. rhetoric trying to appeal to the left, he's essentially a figure of the right who was also playing to, you know, a great Russian national chauvinism and playing as much, ironically, to, you know, nostalgia for the czars and the Cossacks as, you know, to nostalgia for Lenin and Stalin. And with the, uh, you know, the encouragement of sympathetic governments in power in Venezuela and Nicaragua, 
actually has. You know, for the first time, the Russians actually sent a, uh, you know, have sent warships to do maneuvers in the Caribbean in recent years, none of which was happening back in the 1980s. So um, Ortega's Nicaragua is looking to Russia to counterbalance the United States at the same time that the regime of Vladimir Putin apparently has, you know, connived to put the fascistic Trump in power here in the United States and, um, as, and, and figures close to Putin, Russian figures close to Putin, at a minimum, um, have been plowing money into the National Rifle Organization. So here's a final irony for you to cogitate on, is that maybe after all of these years, we are so through the pro- proverbial political looking glass that now, in a certain sense, Daniel Ortega and Oliver North are on the same side. Think about that. <clears throat> okay, I uh, welcome your feedback. Uh, this has been Bill Weinberg on the uh, Counter Vortex. Please check us out online at countervortex.org. Support us on Patreon if you found anything that I've had to say tonight worthwhile or provocative. And Join us next time, join the resistance, and we'll go out with another rendition of Nicaragua, Nicaraguita by Carlos Mejia Godoy. In recollection of those extremely idealistic and promising early days of the Nicaraguan Revolution back in the 1980s, and in the hope that that spirit survives and can be revived, particularly by the Campesino resistance in Nicaragua today to this monstrous, massively irresponsible canal scheme, which the Ortega government is, um, is pushing. So with that, to the Campesinos of Nicaragua. Ay, Nicaragua, Nicaraguita. La flor más linda de mi querer, abonada por la bendita Nicaraguita, sangre de Dirianen. Ay, Nicaragua, son más dulcita que la mielita de Tamagas. Pero ahora que ya sos libre, Nicaraguita, yo te quiero mucho más. Pero ahora que ya sos libre, Nicaragüita, yo te quiero mucho.